Good morning, Marcel. Good to open our service with uh, a prayer to our Heavenly Father um, in thanksgiving for fathers and fatherhood. So if you would please um, pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of fathers and for fatherhood. We know that uh, you value fathers and fatherhood so much that you identify yourself and have revealed yourself to us as our Heavenly Father, one with a only begotten son made it into this world and was adopted by an earthly dad named Joseph. Truly, you, our father, love fatherhood. And so for this reason, we thank you for all of our fathers, all of our grandfathers, all of our fatherly figures, both familial and spiritual, that uh, have been in our lives to provide for us, to protect us, and uh, to shape us. We thank you for the sacrifices they made, the ones that we know about and the ones that we don't. That in those moments they just demonstrated uh, your loving kindness through their actions. We thank you for the big moments that we cherish with them. We thank you for dads. But Father, we also recognize rightly that we live in a fallen world in the east of Eden. Not all of us enjoy the blessing of a good father. And oftentimes fatherhood falls well below your ideal standard. We recognize rightly that some of us have experienced abandonment from our fathers. Some of us, more serious, have experienced abuse. Some of us may not even know who our father is. And with those we weep, with those who weep. But we know that we have a father who is in heaven, the one whom the son has taught us to call Abba and Daddy. And so we look to our good, greatest Father who loves us above all, who knows how to give us good gifts, who blesses us. And we thank you for all the many spiritual fathers we have in the church. So we pray that fathers at Mars Hill would be good husbands and love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We pray that they would be good fathers to their children, that they would raise you in your ways. And we pray that the spiritual fathers of this congregation would continue to disciple to disseminate your counsel and wisdom. Father, we thank you for fathers, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, the blessing of identity in Christ that I speak over this congregation, every time I pray from 1 Peter, I'm going to include the second verse. It comes from 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. You are a chosen race or a holy nation. The reason I'm going to include verse 10 is because... Peter is hitting at something that we're about to see in the Passover narrative, and that there was a time when we were in darkness, but then there was a time when we were called into marvelous light. Time we were not a people, but then a time when we were God's people. You are, present tense, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous life. Once you were not, past tense, a people, but now you are God's people. Now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's the difference between who we were and who we are. Who we were then, who we are now. And really, that's one of the big ideas that we're going to see in the text today. That the blood of a lamb... And through it, Israel's entire concept of their own identity and their time in this world is divided between a before the liberation of Egypt and an after. And that in the same way, what this story is showing us is that we too, because of the blood of Christ, live lives that are divided into a before his merciful atonement and after you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Well, what is the hinge on which that identity change swings? It is the blood of a lamb. So far in Exodus, we've seen God demand the release of his people from Pharaoh, but he has yet to relent. God is moving his arm 
through various plagues to move Pharaoh's heart, but still Pharaoh has remained unmoved. Regardless of what God has thrown at Pharaoh, and even in the moments when Pharaoh seems like he's about to break and relent, it's never a full release of God's people. It's never a full confession of his guilt of enslaving them. And so Israel remains in a state of bondage, and Pharaoh remains in a state of oppressor. And I think it's important to remember kind of Pharaoh's original sin here in the narrative, which is twofold. First, the enslavement of Israel, and second, genocide. Obviously, Pharaoh enslaved the Hebrews because, well, the story wouldn't make sense. We didn't already know that. But we might forget that one of the things that Pharaoh did to kind of curb the population of Israel was that he ordered the killing of all male infants. Do you remember that? Very early on in Exodus. Keep that in mind because last week we learned about the shocking final plague that was coming to the land of Egypt. In Exodus 11, 4 through 5, it reads, So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I, so this is God speaking, I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who's behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. So some things to notice about this last plague. Is Israel spared from it? No. It says that this plague is coming to all of those who are in Egypt. It doesn't matter if you are in Pharaoh's household, you're not going to be spared. And neither does it matter if you are a slave woman. So who were the slaves at this time? The Hebrews. He's making very clear that this plague is over everything in Egypt, so much so that even the animals are going to experience this judgment. In a sense, this is a refracted reflection of what Egypt was doing against Israel at the beginning of the story, that God will cause all the firstborn, both Egyptian and Hebrew, to experience what Pharaoh had done to the Hebrews by killing the infant males. God will kill the firstborn in Egypt. God says, I will do this. Up until now, we've just seen that God has sent plagues, but this one is personal. He's, his presence will be felt in Egypt as he executes this plague. So what a terrifying prophecy that we were given last week. God's judgment is coming. It's going to be brought by himself, and it comes to both Hebrew and Egyptian. We might say in New Testament language, to both the Jew and Gentile. And unless the king of Egypt releases the Hebrews from slavery, everyone would experience that judgment. So one of the questions that we might ask here is, why the death of every firstborn in Egypt? Like it's simple, even though it's still distressing, to imagine why there would be the death of the firstborn Egyptians by God. So just as the Egyptians murdered the infant Hebrew boy, so God is going to take away the firstborns of the Egyptians. Why would he want to do that? Because in the ancient Near Eastern cultures, the eldest son in particular represented the continuation of one's family legacy and power. And so to take away Pharaoh's firstborn is essentially to stop Pharaoh's lineage. It's to embarrass his power. It's to dissolve his legacy. And then he's not going to stop there. God's not going to stop there. He's going to do that to every single person in Egypt. Essentially, God says, you think you're so great and you're growing so well, I'm going to prevent all that from happening. But that still leaves the question, like, why the Hebrews then? If we can kind of understand why God would do that to the Egyptians, why the Hebrews? Isn't God's object in the plagues to liberate his people? And now he seems like he wants to eradicate a large and significant portion of the Israelites because if the firstborn Israelites are gone, then they're suffering the same things that Egypt would be suffering in the termination of their legacy. So instead of asking the question, why would God kill Egypt's firstborn, I think the text is begging us to ask a more poignant question. Is there no other way around what is about to happen? Is there no other way around this plague through this judgment? And here in the midst of this distress of us asking this question, chapter 12 opens up, and as Brad read, God sends to his people what appears to be the answer. 
is there no other way to get around this? God says, yes. And strangely enough, the answer seems to have more to do with instructions for dinner than it does with some kind of ritual that we might assume is there. Roast the lamb, accompany the meat with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, and eat it all. Oh, by the way, take some of the blood from the lamb and cover your door frames with it. Then your firstborn will be spared. This is the only way to escape this final plague. This and the following passages, despite seeming so foreign and peculiar to us, especially if this is the first time you've come across it, it's absolutely rich in meaning. We've been mining Exodus for a few months now, and here at the Passover, we have struck an incredibly rich vein of gold, of theological truth that both points us forward to the cross of the Lord Jesus and enhances our understanding of the significance of his death. The greatest foreshadowing of the cross of Jesus Christ for the redemption of the sins of the world is here in the Passover on display. To the certain extent, the Old Testament prophets recognized this and carried that imagery forward, but certainly the New Testament apostles looked back to the Passover through the cross of Christ and rightly recognized that what we were seeing in the Passover would have its fulfillment in the cross. So for example, John the Baptist will announce to the world that Jesus Christ is the what? Lamb of God. The Lamb of God who does what? Who has come to take away the sins of the world. He's the Lamb of God who has come to prevent us from succumbing to God's wrath as sinners. The Apostle Paul calls Jesus our Passover lamb. There's no question that this, what we're going to read today, is connected to Christ. And that through his sacrifice, we are redeemed towards a, a sincerity and truth, he says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. And John saw our amazing future as believers, all singing what he called the song of the lamb. This is the soundtrack of heaven. And the lyrics go like this. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true your ways, O King to the nations. That's called the song of the Lamb. And all throughout church history, members of Jesus' church have rightly recognized the significance of this event. Augustine described the Passover as a living prophecy. He says that Christians are to this day be marked as a doorpost with the blood of Christ for salvation. Essentially, he says, in the human figure, if we are not covered in Christ's blood, um, we, we have no salvation. John Calvin taught that the Passover was one of the primary sure signs that Christ will seal for us redemption by his blood. You can't understand what that means unless you first understand Passover. John Wesley called the Passover, quote, the most memorable providences of all that are in the Old Testament because it is the sure promise that faith leads to the preservation of God's people. Essentially what he's saying is if you look back at the Old Testament and you want um, a, a clear indication of the significance of the cross, look nowhere else than the Passover. Really, that's the most memorable, he says. And Charles Spurgeon interpreted the Passover to mean that believers in the greater Passover lamb, Jesus, are sheltered beneath the sprinkling of his blood. If I could boil down distill what it means that all of these folks are trying to communicate to us, it's this. The Passover story is the gospel story in embryo. The Passover story is the gospel story in embryo. And all throughout the Old Testament, the Passover story is going to gestate, and then in the gospels, it's going to give birth to the good news. In the Passover, we find a people enslaved by a tyrant in darkness. We find God's judgment poured out not over some, but over all. We see God keeping some for himself in that judgment, and he does so through the blood of a spotless lamb. And we marvel then at the lengths and the, the, the miraculous deeds that God did to liberate his people. So we cannot rush through this text. Over the next two chapters, in fact, we're going to weave in and out of the Passover. We're going to look at its institution, and we're going to look at its practice. 
And we're going to defer a lot of the symbolism to next week when Jack will be here to preach. He's going to walk us through the significance of the Passover meal, especially as it relates to the unleavened bread, as we'll see today. And that's something that many people at Mars Hill have actually experienced. One of the unique things about Mars Hill is that we, we celebrate a Passover meal as an educational experience to show how this Passover is tied to Christ. Just quickly, show of hands, how many people have participated in the Passover uh, experience here at Mars? Yeah, so again, first service was about half so I think roughly about half of our church has experienced that at least once. And so because of that familiarity and because of what Jack's going to bring for us next week, what I want to do today is to not move quickly past the first two verses. We're going to do everything from 1 through 13, but I want to pay particular attention to 1 and 2 because we can make a big mistake in just kind of walking past those two verses very quickly. And then once we've kind of examined 1 and 2 and mind them for meaning we will go from 3 to 13, and that'll kind of set us up for next Sunday. So let's read verses 1 through 2. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. So essentially what's about to happen is the Passover is coming, and because the Passover is so significant it's literally going to rearrange time for the Israelites. This is bad news if you're an Israelite and you just bought a new calendar, right? So now you gotta trade that one in for the new calendar. It's so significant that time itself is being rearranged for God's people. In our cultural context, historical context, there's only been one other time when this has happened, it was when the West decided to rearrange our conception of time around the arrival of Christ, which is why we divide time between B.C., before Christ, and A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. And even when people are like, well, let's change it to B.C.E., before Common Era, and C.E., Common Era, and get rid of Jesus, you still got to ask, like, well, what makes it common now? Like, what happened in zero? Right? So you, you can't get rid of it, if you, even if you call it by something else. So significant, right? So what we did in the West, God is commanding the Israelites to do. Rearrange your entire conception of time around this Passover meal. For Israel, there's a BP and an AP now. There's a before Passover and after Passover. There's a time before Passover when Israel was bound to slavery and forced to serve a tyrant far from the promises of God. When they were in darkness, they were not a people, they were without mercy. But soon there will be a time, AP, after Passover, when Israel will be freed from slavery, free to serve and worship God, near to the promises of God. You see, the beginning of Israel is a new beginning, or the beginning of Passover, I should say, is a new beginning of Israel. And so for Israel, all of time is measured in the relationship to God's redemptive work for them through the Passover. And I'm so grateful that the Holy Spirit makes this point at this point in scripture because it's the same for us, isn't it? Like there's a BC in your life and an AD in your life, right? There's a before Christ in a time when you would describe yourself anno domini, in the year of the Lord. I'm, never, I'm no longer in the year of Kyle. I'm no longer in the year of sin. I am under and in the year of the Lord. And there's a lot of application for us there. This is why I don't want to move past it very quickly. The first thing we can think of here is that the redemptive plan of God operates on heaven's calendar and not on ours. The redemptive plan that God makes, they operate on his calendar and not on ours. The author of Ecclesiastes opens uh, the, the third chapter saying that, a, that for everything there's a season and that there's a time for every matter under the sun. And I say that in connection with uh, what we're seeing here with the Passover because I think most of us in this room would agree that it is God's prerogative and privilege alone to determine how he would save his people. That we don't get to dictate how God is going to save us. 
But what we don't make the connection very often is it's equally God's prerogative and privilege to determine when he saves, right? So we would say like, yes, God, you have all right and privilege to determine how salvation works, but we are the ones that time salvation out. I don't think anybody would say that out loud, but kind of we, we, we function in that way. We think less about how God is privileged alone to determine when he would save his people. I mean, think about it. When do you suppose the Israelites wanted liberation? It was before the plagues even began. Remember, God said, I've heard the groaning of my people. They were, they were pleading for God, calling for God for redemption. That's when they wanted to go. And when do you suppose Moses wanted freedom for his people? It's probably after the first plague. He's like, I've seen enough. Rivers into blood, that's new for me. Don't want to find out what else God can do. <laughs> How about Pharaoh? We wrap this up and we'll be on our way. But when did God want to liberate his people? Whatever God does, he does it because he wants. He never does anything he does not want to do. And because he has a perfect will, all of the things he wants to do are good. So if God chose to liberate Israel after a series of plagues, it's because he wanted to liberate Israel after a series of plagues. It wasn't because his hands were tied. It wasn't because he was subject to some kind of bureaucracy. He wanted these plagues to unfold. So why wait that long? Why did he want these plagues to unfold? I think to answer that question, there's a the few ways we can approach it. First, and probably most obvious, it's to offer Egypt and Pharaoh a chance of repentance. And you know, some took up the offer, didn't they? We saw that with the hail. Now, if God had come to Pharaoh through Moses and said, let my people go the first time, Moses and, and Pharaoh said, no. God said, fine, I'm just going to execute judgment on all of you, except for my people. I'm going to take them out. He could have done that. But instead, he introduces these plagues to Egypt, and little by little, we see the opposition to God from the Egyptians fracture and some of the Egyptians actually begin to believe God and act out of that faith and are spared some of the plagues. You see, God wanted to give Egypt a chance of repentance. That's why he waits so long. And that principle really hasn't changed. And some of us might be asking, looking at the world, like, how long, O oh Lord? <laughs> how long, O oh Lord? And what does Peter say? The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God wants all to reach repentance. And that is why his calendar looks much different than ours. Another reason is to display his mercy, or to, to, to build trust in his mercy in his people. What Israel does not know, but God knows for sure, is that once they're liberated, they're going to spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Israel has no coming. They don't have this. And God knows that they're going to face some pretty difficult situations. So by extending their time in Egypt during these plagues, God's actually showing them that when things get really bad, I'm still true to my word, and I'm going to see you through it. Case in point, there have been a number of plagues that did not affect Goshen, where the Hebrews lived. I mean, is, 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 he's not merely saying, like, trust me. He's proving that you can trust him. So in the wilderness, when they experience something that's difficult, the Israelites should be able to think back to their time in Goshen when they had light, and everything around them was dark. Or when they had cattle in the field and all the cattle in Egypt were dead. Are they going to do that? Nope. <laughs> but that's just a parable for the human condition. Still, God is merciful. He's patient. He wants to give that lesson anyway. Third, and most importantly, 
God is delaying or has delayed their redemption to get us to Passover to tie Israel's liberation from Egypt to a future redemption of all God's people. This is the most important reason why God has delayed, allowed these plagues to unravel. He wants to tie the way that he's going to redeem Egypt to the way he's going to redeem the world in the future. This is like a, 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 a true living example of what Paul says, that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, all things, even the plagues. There is a reason that he has allowed Israel to remain in Egypt this long under these plagues. Because if it wasn't for his timing, if it wasn't for that delay, and if it wasn't for Israel's endurance through them, we would have no gospel in embryo of the Passover. We would have no signpost pointing to the true Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God is preparing the hearts of the Israel to receive her Messiah. See, the redemptive plan of God operates on heaven's calendar, not Israel's and not ours. In fact, our redemption was actually planned before there were even calendars, before there was even human life, before time itself existed. He, God our Father, chose us, the Lord Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And our salvation works according to his calendar, not ours. His timing, not ours. I know for a lot of us, we, we may have friends or family members that are unbelieving, and we just wish we could wave a magic wand and see them come home or watch her relent, watch him repent. But it's not according to the appointments we make on our calendar, is it? Instead, what God has said is, look, salvation operates on my calendar. It's not like you don't have a role to play. I've given you a role. Pray and evangelize. Pray that that day of redemption might be realized. Pray that you might be around to see it, that you can watch Israel leave Egypt. You can see your kids and grandkids, friends and neighbors, believe in their heart that the Lord was raised and confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. Stop calendaring, start calling. I guess that's the point. Call on God to save. Call the wayward to come to the Father. So if this passage shows that redemption plan of God operates on heaven's calendar and not ours, it also shows something uh, for us as a church, that the church ought to measure time around the wonderful work and will of God. And, and that, I mean that both corporately as a body, us together, and individually. Corporately, it means a couple of things. First, uh, we should not look primarily to the world's calendars. We should be looking to God's calendar. What I don't mean is to forsake holidays. I like fireworks. So 4th of July is great. I really love Thanksgiving because of the food. So that's what I'm not saying. But I, I'm saying something deeper about calendars here, that we have to be aware that what fills our calendars are the things that we are compelled to do and the things that we desire to do. I mean, think about your calendar right now. Some of you are like, I don't want to. That's what Monday is for. <laughs> but, but think about your calendar for a second. Really. Just about everything on the calendar can be categorized into one of two things. One, things you must do. Okay, these are like your meetings, school schedules, chores, trips, etc. But then there are things you want to do. These are your vacation, time off, meetups with friends. But as people of God, the calendars that we ought to look to first and foremost and always are the things that God has done for us and the things he wants for us. You see what I'm saying? That, that there is a calendar that he operates by and that the closer we can get our calendars to sync with his, the more we will be aligned in God's will. So the things we think we must do must align with what God says we must do. And the things that we want to do ought to align with the things God wants for us to do. Second, we schedule not according to our plans, but to God's plans. And I think this is especially true for us as a church in this season. If you take a break for a second, you think about the past two years, which does not feel like two years, but it is. That we, Marcel has, has planted a church by God's grace. It is growing. Uh, we're coming out of a pandemic, and many of us are starting to ask, like, okay, what's next for Mars Hill? And I can answer this partially. 
because there are certain standing appointments on the calendar of heaven. They look like this, feasting on the word of God, fellowshipping with his people, proclaiming his gospel at home and in public spaces. Uh, these are always repeating events on God's calendar for us, moments when our souls are welcome to be nourished and stretched. And, and naturally, there are going to be avenues of ministry and opportunities that the Lord calls us to as a church. I don't doubt that God will stop giving us those opportunities. In fact, uh, missionally speaking, we're starting to see opportunities grow. And um, in fact, just two weeks ago uh, at staff retreat, uh, we were calendaring what the next year is going to look like. And part of me thought it was hilarious that we're calendaring what the next year is going to look like. Because how many of you made plans in 2019 that panned out? Right? <laughs> I hope you wrote that on a whiteboard because you're probably like erasing. And there was one guy, you know there was one guy somewhere who called the pandemic. He's that same guy that wins the March Madness bracket. Like, how did you do that? <laughs> but for most of us, there's no way we could have foreseen what 2020 would bring. The heart of the man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. That's what Proverbs 16:9 says. We are planning people, aren't we? It's not wrong to plan. There's no chastising the heart of man for planning. But there's a gentle reminder that it may not go according to your plan, because it's God who establishes your steps. And here we're seeing that same thing. I bet Israel planned for an earlier departure. But God ordained their steps. So calendar your life in pencil and give the eraser to God. There's also an, an individual aspect here of, of living on God's calendar of redemption. There are months and years when we were in enmity toward God, and there are months and years where we were called children of God. There's the BC and the AD aspect. This is my favorite part of this passage to see. So question, why do we tend to shy away from reflecting on the BC portions of our calendar? I, I think it's fascinating that God has essentially said, look, um, I want you to always remember where you came from and who you were in contrast to where you are and who you are now. That's why we're resetting your calendar at Passover, because you're going to go from who you were to who you are. The source of who identifies you and the things that you do are radically shifting from sin to holiness. And the same thing happens with us in our life. This is a parable of us. That by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, we transfer from a BC to an AD life. And for a lot of us, the longer we stay in this AD life, as the Holy Spirit sanctifies us, daily showing us just how deep our sin was and how deep the blood of Christ must seep into our hearts to cover it. Reflection on our past um, becomes more grievous over time, doesn't it? If you've, if you've been in the faith for any number of times, you think and you reflect back on kind of the depths of your sin and, and disappointment, regret, hopefully thanksgiving for what God has, had done to preserve you for himself during that time. Those are all right responses, but there's a thing that the enemy likes to do in those times too, and it's also to condemn you. But remember... In an A.D. world, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The enemy doesn't get to define who you are anymore. That was B.C. Pharaoh will soon have no authority or control over Israel. I'd like to remind us of this, that who you were before Christ may describe you, but it does not define you. Reflecting on your B.C. time of life may define you, may kind of help explain where you come from and the experiences that you have, but it does not define who you are. You don't even get to define who you are. Culture doesn't define who you are. Pop culture icons don't define who you are. Authorities don't define who you are. The only one who defines who you are is Jesus. So listen to him. What does he say you are? He paid a really high price to purchase you. He gets to say who you are now in that A.D. world. And so it is with Israel. They were slaves, but now they're free. Likewise, thanks be to God that you were once slaves, Paul says, slaves of sin, that is, and have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Why? Because Christ has made peace by the blood of his cross, and you who were, past tense, alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now, present tense, reconciled, in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You were Israel in bondage to Pharaoh, 
By faith, you had a Passover, and now you are freed by the blood of Christ to pursue holiness and blamelessness. By the blood of Jesus, you are a new person, and you live in a new calendar. You got a new birthday. Everything's new. You live in a new kingdom with new holidays. Welcome to the kingdom of God. Just as Israel's whole timeline shifted at the Passover, so your whole life shifted the moment you placed your faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And just as Israel is now no longer defined by what they make, remember they were defined solely by bricks of making bricks for Pharaoh, that's kind of where their value came from, so you too are no longer defined by your formal toil and working in sin, demanding from idols and searching in idols what only the Lord can and does give to you. By the blood of Christ, you are a new person. You've got a new birthday. You operate on a new calendar. You are in A.D., after Passover. And it's the blood of Christ, God's perfect and spotless lamb, that we... Well, I'll say this. In the Passover, and what we're about to see now, from 13 to, or 3 through 13, and in the, in the blood of the lamb that we're about to see, we see a foreshadowing of what Christ would do. So what I want to do now, um, for the rest of the sermon here is to walk through line by line the Passover instructions to see how they ask the question, to whom is this pointing towards? And again, we're going to get a little more uh, in-depth on the symbolism of all of these elements that we're going to see next week when Jack teaches. But what I want to do, so he's going to give us, we're going to look at the trees next week. I want us to stay at 30,000 foot for a second and look at the forest. So in doing so, one of the questions we're going to ask is, to whom is the Passover pointing? whom is the Passover pointing? All of you are like, Jesus, I know, but hold on. This enhances what does that answer mean to us. Verse 3 through 4, tell all the congregation of Israel on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. So here's the beginning of the answer to our question that we asked earlier. Is there no other way? Is there no other way around this plague? Is there no other way through this judgment of God? Is there no other way to escape God's judgment, the death of the firstborn? Again, we cannot imagine that this is a story of bad Egyptians and good Israelites. Obviously, we would say Egypt deserved judgment. They were enslaving and committing genocide. But Israel deserved judgment too. Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 3 that none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all turn aside, together they become worthless, no one does good, not even one. There is no asterisk in the Greek to exclude Israel. Israel deserved judgment too, because they're sinners. Moreover, Israel was led by Moses, who was, lest we forget, a murderer, who was a coward, who called God's works evil in Exodus chapter 5, verse 22. So Israel deserves the same judgment for sin as Egypt did. But unlike Egypt, God is going to save Israel through faith. Is there no other way to escape God's judgment? God said, yes, there's only one way to escape God's judgment, and it begins by selecting a lamb. A faithful act, a response of faith to secure atonement for yourself. Israel could hear the instructions and not do anything and their firstborn would die. But to hear God's call and to respond in faith puts them on a trajectory of atonement, the only way out from this judgment. So to whom is the Passover pointing? It's pointing to a sacrifice, a lamb-like thing that will bring atonement. And what does John the Baptist call Jesus but the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? John the Baptist saw this. But Israel is not to pick just any kind of lamb. Read verses 5 through 6. He says, the lamb you shall, your lamb shall be without blemish. Or in other words, perfect. It should be a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Just a small note there, but did you notice the timing? They selected it, and then they keep it for four days. 
getting, getting to know the lamb. How difficult. God, there's something about this sacrifice that God wants their emotional investment into. They want them to feel the heaviness of the death of this lamb. The lamb must be perfect. The lamb must be male. And obviously, the lamb must be killed. God's holiness demands a sacrifice of perfection. They couldn't just pick a lamb that they were going to eat on Friday anyway. right? They, they couldn't just pick a lamb that was on its last legs. They had to pick a young lamb, a perfect lamb, costly, precious, and pure. And this would be the object of sacrifice for death. So again, we ask our question, to whom is the Passover pointing? It's pointing to a male sacrificial lamb that is perfect, one that would ultimately die for the atonement of sin. Paul says famously in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, God made Christ, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, in other words, without blemish, to borrow language from Exodus, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But it was insufficient merely to kill the lamb, too. Read in verse 7. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts, doorposts and on the lintel of the houses of which they eat. So we, we might ask this question like, okay, why kill a lamb? And the answer to that is kind of twofold. The first part is being answered for us here in verse 7, and then the second part of the answer is going to come in 8 through 10. And it has to do with blood and the consumption of the lamb. So here, we learn that the death was necessary for the blood of the lamb. That sin, which leads to death, mysteriously, Scripture teaches us over and over and over again, is only overpowered by a death that pours out the source of life, which is blood. Remember, at the fall of humanity in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve realized what they had done, they felt ashamed and they wanted to cover their own sins. So what did they do? They made fig leaves for themselves. The object of this lesson is when we sin, we try to fix it ourselves. We try to save ourselves. We try to redeem ourselves. But God says that's not going to work because your works are insufficient. The task is to jump to the moon. And maybe you can jump three inches higher than I can, but neither of us are getting there. And so, God does something. The Lord God made for Adam and his wife skins or garments of skins and clothed them. Where did those garments come from? See, God killed an animal. Something bled so that Adam and Eve could live. A sacrifice of blood was required to cover sin. We see that all the way at the beginning of the Bible. And here in the Passover, we're starting to see that theme build. Just as Adam and Eve's sins were covered by death of an animal, so God's judgment would pass over Israel by the blood of an animal. And just as the blood of the lamb would seep into the wooden doorposts, if we carry this imagery forward, so the blood of the lamb of God is going to seep into the wood of a cross. From Genesis to Exodus to the Gospels, to whom is the Passover pointing to a male sacrificial lamb that is perfect, that would die for the atonement of sins, and whose blood would cover the sins of God's people. Peter says these words, the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, is without blemish or spot. Peter tied Christ's work directly to the Passover. Yet, the blood of the lamb alone was only part of this Passover redemption for Israel. Read with me. Verses 8 through 10. They, being the households, shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on a fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. You shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. So there's some, um, I was going to call them appetizers. Um, this is the only word that's stuck in my head now. Uh, there, there are some elements to this dinner that accompany the lamb, the bitter herbs and the unleavened bread. We're going to talk about those in detail next week. But for now, it's important to notice that each house in Israel had to consume the lamb entirely. And if there was anything left over, they had to destroy it the next day. You shall let none of it remain. This is really important. 
because it's pointing toward this male sacrificial perfect lamb that's going to come and bleed for our atonement who must mysteriously be completely consumed. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life, Jesus says in John 6. And that's such a difficult teaching to hear that so many of his, the people that we're following dissipated. But Jesus is talking about something deeper here. Not the consumption of his flesh and blood, but the consumption of his work in his flesh and in his blood. John Wesley, when looking at John 6 and thinking about Passover, had this brilliant observation. He said the Passover sacrifice was not to be looked upon wholly, but to be fed upon. Though, that those by faith feed upon Christ, we must feed upon him completely. Completely. We don't get to just look at Jesus' work as an example to follow or a good start there. Jesus, I'm going to have to finish it myself. God's not offering his son in part. He's offering his son in whole. And we have one of two options, to accept him in whole or to reject him altogether. We don't get to take part of Jesus' teachings and leave others we don't get to take part of Jesus' works and, for example, just explain away miracles. We don't get to take the death without the resurrection. We don't get the resurrection without the death. We consume all of Christ's work. That's why the Passover lamb had to be consumed completely and none of it was to remain. We don't get to pick and choose what we want of Christ. We merely accept him whole and feast on his atoning work completely. Verses 11 through 13. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, sandals on your feet, staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Again, in case you're curious, like, why do they have to be dressed that certain way? Jack's going to address it next week. I want us to stay up at the 30,000 foot view for, for our sake. This is the Lord's Passover. <laughs> it says... His salvation, his redemption, his liberation, not Israel's, not ours. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You see, Passover is pointing us to this. There's a sacrificial blood of perfection that is the only power that saves. God says to Israel, the only way you're going to get out of this is by blood. I have to see that blood seeping in that wood in order to prevent you from succumbing to my judgment. Sacrificial blood of a perfect sacrifice is the only power, the only element that will save Israel, and that is 100% the truth for us today that the sacrificial blood of the perfect Lord Jesus is the only power that saves us. I've said it before, I'll say it again, a bloodless gospel is no gospel at all. If you remove the cross, if you remove Christ's shed blood on the cross, you no longer have good news. You have bad news because there's no lamb that we can select to kill to paint its blood over our doorpost and firstborns are going to die. The blood of Christ is central to the gospel. And if this pulpit should ever shy away from the centrality of Christ's shed blood on the cross for the redemption of our sins, that is an imperative sign, an explicit permission to you to go find another church because this isn't one anymore. That is how important the blood of Christ is. 
Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, the author of Hebrews said. What the Passover is getting us ready to see is that salvation from God is scarlet. It is warm. And it runs from pierced hands and feet and the side of the only Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus. Who are the Hebrews that get to to leave Egypt with household intact? It's those whose houses were marked by the blood of the Passover lamb. And who are those clothed in white robes, saved to the Lord? Revelation 7.14, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Church, the cross of Christ and our atonement from it is the hinge on which our entire life swings from darkness to light. And that hinge doesn't move without the blood of Christ. There is a definitive marker of time that splits between before the blood of Christ was made effective on us and after the blood of Christ has been made effective of us. This is what Passover is pointing us to. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. What happened? The blood of Christ. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What happened? The blood of Christ. And here in the Passover, we see God's promise of the cross begin to reveal itself as he's preparing the hearts of his people to see that there is a greater, more perfect, more sinless, spotless lamb to come, the lamb of God. And praise be to God that he has made a way to escape spiritual enslavement and eternal death for all people by such a precious, heavy price, the Son, blood. So let's be a people whose calendars are marked by the atonement of Christ. That through the lens of his sacrifice for us, we see all things. Let's be a people who joyfully recall the awesome sacrifice made by the Father, which is his only Son, whose death brought us to life. And let's proclaim the good news that in a fallen world, you don't have to live in darkness and you don't have to remain in spiritual slavery any longer. Freedom's here. Come, feast on the work of Christ. Celebrate the day of God's salvation for you. And thank God for his cross and his glorious resurrection three days later. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your timing, which is perfect, your ways, which are good, that even though it may be hard to understand from our perspective, you were keeping Israel so long so that you can get to this one incredible picture of the gospel, that being the sacrifice of a spotless lamb whose blood would cause your wrath to pass over us. We recognize rightly that there's only one way to salvation, one way to the Father, and that is through the blood of your Son. So, Father, by faith, we pray that his blood would cover us and that through his sacrifice, we as a people would be led out of the darkness into the marvelous light, that we'd be a people who would proclaim your excellencies to the world, to call more people out of Egypt through the precious blood of your Son. It's in his name that we pray these things. Amen. As we meditate on those things, church.